Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Inside of Three Specialists. I'm James, that's Vindana, and that's Callum, and we three are going to teach you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. James, how are you doing? I'm okay, Callum, but... Do you know, I've been thinking lately that this uh, podcast isn't very diverse. Okay. You know, you're a man. I'm a man. We keep on talking about pathogens all the time. There's too many microbe males. And what a coincidence, Callum, uh, because who's our guest on today? Um, welcome, Vindana. Uh, <laughs> I did not know where that was going. I was like, where is James going with this? Yep. I was about to take a uh, swift <laughs> dive into the manosphere, but then backed out at the last moment. So who's our <laughs> guest today? So we're pleased to be joined today by the host of James Terrible Pun podcast, uh, Microbe Mail, M-A-I-L. Uh, welcome, Vindana. Thanks so much for having me on. I didn't expect that pun coming through either. But yeah, for all your listeners, it's Microbe, M-A-I-L. And it's nice that you've got a female on. <laughs> it's about time. Uh, so, Vandana, can you tell me a bit about Microbe Male and a bit about yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I am actually a medical microbiologist. I'm based at a, an academic tertiary hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. And um, I'm also joint staff with the University of the Witwatersrand, Run, teaching microbiology to medical students, postgraduate students, etc. And so Microbe Mail was my little um, pandemic baby, I suppose mm. we could call it, much like yours. Um, yeah, a lot of pandemic baby <laughs> infectious disease podcasts, um, I suppose. Yeah, so just a nice way to reach um, the audience who can't access um, teaching material related to infectious diseases, microbiology. Yeah, and we basically have experts on talking about various topics in IDN Micro and make it casual conversation, um, very much like the Idiots podcast. Yeah. Is that what drove you to start the podcast? Was, the, uh, was lockdown and COVID and uh, just kind of wanting uh, another outlet? Absolutely. Um, and also finding that during the pandemic, especially in 2020, there were so many webinars and you had mm. to be available at a particular time to sit down in front of your computer because that's when it started. It started at 5 p.m. And if you weren't available at 5 p.m., you kind of missed it. Mm. Um, so to have something that was accessible um, at your leisure, when it was, it, was, it was suitable to you, you know, people driving in their cars or taking public transport, you don't need to sit in front of a screen necessarily to listen. Um, and also, yeah, I think also having very long webinars with PowerPoint presentations, you sometimes lose the audience. So keeping it short, sweet, simple, and easily accessible. That was the idea. There's something really powerful about that sort of what we call flipped classroom approach where you can, you can give students and learners like the material, the the foundation to, to learn something, and then they can come along to the synchronous, you know, in in person or or maybe online session, and they've listened to that podcast episode, and then you can say, okay, what were the questions about that like, or let's explore this a bit more in something that's more collaborative. Do you like take your when you have the students that are learning? Are you is this some your podcast something that you like give them as a resource to say, listen to this. Yeah, so we've been building up the repertoire of episodes um, and just having it kind of there in the background for them to listen to. But certainly from this year onwards, we're going to try and make it more interactive to say, here's a piece of learning material. And then, as you say, have the synchronous session with the students and say, well, now we've got this whole repertoire of episodes. We can build it into the entire course. But it also helps us reach um, clinicians in other sectors of the healthcare environment that we mm -hmm. don't get to reach. So in kind of a rural setting or mm. um, private general practitioners, et cetera, who don't always have access to material. So it's been kind of students and clinicians that we've been able to reach. Yeah, that's huge. Because I guess like a lot of the time, if you're looking for a specialist opinion on something that like you might have to directly ask them a question every time, but that's not time efficient or 
you know, might go and find a textbook or a web page or up to date or one of these resources. But yeah. then you, the way that you have it with the experts coming on is that you're probably getting much more up to date information than you, you could get in any other outlet other than speaking mm -hmm. them directly about your problem. So it's it's really an interesting way of saying, you know, rather than than a, an expensive textbook, you can download your episodes for free. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a shorter way to get the answer than reading, you know, as you say, a chapter or two chap chapters, you probably need an hour or two hours. And and we try to keep the episodes short. So a lot of them are between 20 and 30 minutes and hmm. you've got your answer by the end of it. Yeah, we try and keep our episodes short. <laughs> the <laughs> listeners know that we generally fail. And in fairness, they usually are longer than what's put out because I edit out quite a lot of James' bad jokes. Mm. <laughs> Just, no, just imagine, Callum, only having 30 minutes of uh, audio to edit. <laughs> Your mouth's watering at the very prospect. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a good point uh, about the, you know, the the listener, the, your your sort of base of people that can listen to you being expanded markedly by by putting it out. And, and also, it, it depends on the content, but quite a lot of the infectious disease content can be, you know, considered to be evergreen. So yeah. like the you know, you, you at, at the moment, most of our uh, early episodes were, were focusing on sort of pathogens, bug episodes, we call them. And, you know, Staph aureus is not going to change from gram positive to gram negative. It's going to be gram positive forever. And so most of the information in that episode is going to be useful if you're coming back in five years time. Some of the advice on treatment might change um, yeah. and investigation, but you know, that can be dealt with, with, with updating episodes as well. And like the, one, of, one of the things that I like about micro meals that quite a lot of the episodes that are pushed out will be valid, you know, five years down the line as they are the day that they were uh, released. So if anybody is listening and they're listening on the idiot's feed and they're not sub to micro mail, go and sub to micro mail. And if anybody's listening on the micro mail feed and they're wondering who are these uh, idiots, <laughs> why is it called the idiots podcast? <laughs> Uh, please go and uh, sub to us and give us a try. Uh, but anyway, so today we, uh, what are we talking about today? We wanted you on because we wanted, we've had a few episodes recently where we've been concentrating on management of gram negatives in general and difficult to treat gram negatives in particular. And that's, you know, with a, um, with one eye on the recently released ESCMID and IDSA guidance for difficult to treat gram negatives. And obviously we've got a, a bunch of new drugs which are on the market. And we're wondering about, you know, the uh, kind of the lay of the land in uh, a middle income country like, like South Africa, where there might not be as good access to some of these, um, uh, uh, these drugs. So we've got a few questions that we want to hammer you with. Is that okay if we carry on? Yeah, go for it. If I'm not happy with any of them, Callum's just going to edit it out. Camel edited it out, exactly. <laughs> That's what he's here for. Nothing's so, edited. It's all, it's all, all right first time on, on this podcast. Yeah, that's right. So let's start with the scale of the issue. So in South Africa, in your clinical practice, how big a problem are the difficult to treat resistances, ESBLs, APSEs, carbapenemases? Like how often are you encountering them? Are they a big problem or are they? So they're a huge problem. <clears throat> and that's the kind of the short answer of it. ESBLs are basically endemic mm -hmm. in most hospitals in the country, especially academic hospitals, tertiary hospitals, et cetera. And we're finding that they're also infiltrating into the smaller regional and district hospitals. Um, probably your community hospitals less so yeah, because yeah. patients are you know, basically just coming in and out for short visits, but they're a huge problem. Um, <clears throat> so in some settings, you will see 40, 50% ESPLs in particular units or hospital-wide. Um, yeah, that's a huge problem. Um, Carbapenemases also becoming a huge problem and can vary again from hospital to hospital and unit to unit, but we can see up to about 30% Carbapenemases in some settings. Thirty percent. Is this your? Is this your blood culture results, or is it your urines, or is it some are blood cultures? Some are just kind of unit specific, traditional antibiogram based um, data. Mm -hmm. so it's a massive problem in terms of the CPEs that we do see. We've got a predominance countrywide of the Oxa forty eights, 
a couple of years back, in fact, it was an NDM predominance and OXA48s have taken over. So I'd say, you know, first is OXA48, second is NDM. Um, and third, we're getting more and more VIMs coming up, but in much, much smaller proportions. Um, scary things happening in the last two years is that we're seeing isolates with dual carbapenemases, which is hugely problematic, seeing lots of OXA48 with the NDMs. And I had the hugest scare last year. And I think in the lab, we probably used about four or five tests just to confirm that this was true. But we, in fact, saw a couple of triple carbapenemases, which had an OXA48, NDM, and a VIM all in the same Klebsiella isolate. So that was a proper nightmare. If I remember correctly, it was October. And I thought, is this got something to do with Halloween? But it was, it was true, really was. So that's a huge problem. Um, Oxa 40, and, NDM and VIM. And VIM, all in one isolate. Whew. Yeah, it was absolute, absolute nightmare. Yeah. Um, we hope it didn't spread. We tried our best to kind of keep it contained. Yes. <clears throat> Lock the patient in a box. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be uh, properly terrifying. Um, and can I ask that? That's the. Yeah. That's the um, uh, b side of things. Yeah. Do you have a lot of acquired or intrinsic resistance to the other sort of big hitters that we uh, we we would use in this space? You know, your your colistins and your your aminoglycosides, all that kind of stuff. So, colistin resistance is increasing um, because we're having to use a lot of colistin um, with limited access. So, it is yeah. Um, in one study, I think it was looking at the acinetobacterbalmaniis, which in general in South Africa, about 70 to 80% of uh, acinetobacterbalmaniis are extensively drug resistant, where we basically only have really good susceptibility to colistin, and everything else is kind of sitting at 20, 30% susceptibility for, for all the other agents that we have access to. So we're getting to close to 5 to 10% colistin resistance in some settings, um, depending on the study that you're looking at. Yeah, so that's our, so our first biggest problem is, is the CPEs. Well, ESBLs are now endemic. So our big problem is CPEs. Our second biggest problem is the acinetobacters. Um, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, less so of a problem uh, in terms of numbers, I'd say they're probably about a quarter of the number of isolates that we see of, of Klebsiella's, et cetera. So mm. yeah, it's there, but not it's not kind of huge priority. Yeah, yeah. Can I jump in with a question that wasn't on James' prepared and approved list of questions? So apologies, James. From the laboratory side of things, what's your sort of routine? Is it PCR testing that you're doing? And, and when does that happen? Is that happening like quite early on in the process of, of results? Or or is it all uh, sort of phenotypic resistance screening and then doing the PCR as a sort of backup test when you get phenotypic resistance? Is this for the CPEs, Callum? Yes. Sorry, yeah, I should have So, yeah, so the private laboratories in South Africa have access to PCR and the public hospitals use the lateral flow assays, which we found to be actually quite quite sensitive tests and mm. pretty accurate. Yeah, a few hospitals here have been doing that as a as a PCR sparing maneuver. They're doing the lateral yeah. flow and then they're moving on to, to PCR second. Um, so yeah. any any signal like uh, if they're mer yeah, negative is more yeah. than two, they just yeah. they do that and they put up yeah. a MRM IC and yeah. all that sort of uh, uh, stuff. So in fact, we we get our results probably faster than you would with a PCR because as soon as we've identified carbapenem resistance on um, susceptibility testing, we immediately do the lateral flow assay and we've got a result in fifteen minutes. You know, so it's fairly quick wow. and we can act upon them pretty quickly. And and for your susceptibility testing, are you using an automated machine like the uh, like the BD Phoenix or the Biomedio Vitec? So what what are you got, using? Yeah. So in most South African laboratories, um, it's the Biomedio Vitec. Right. Um, on blood cultures, um, some laboratories will do um, direct susceptibility testing mm. um, to have some kind of indication after a couple of hours of of what the uh, susceptibility mm. pattern looks like but this it's not routine it's not everywhere thanks uh sorry jumping in before right. cool. Well, cool. maybe i'll try to take the next official question yeah um, go on, Carl. so uh, tag team it. uh 
obviously like one of the, the challenges is perhaps a, a more limited repertoire of, of agent. What are your sort of go-to standard treatments for the for gram-negative infections in South Africa? So for, um, well, it's probably best to start with community-acquired infections. So there we've got access to amoxicillin clavulanate. We've got access to keftraxone, kefataxime. So those are the usual agents um, for, you know, invasive infections, bloodstream infections, et cetera. And then when it comes to the healthcare-associated infections, there's still a lot of focus on using carbapenems um, as a second-line agent because we've got such high rates of ESBLs and other resistant. Oh, so, and, and what's your go-to carbapenem? So it's usually meropenem, okay. um, unless there's a stock issue, in which case, you know, you'd switch to imipenem. Um, so we don't really have doripenem um, easily available. So the three carbapenems are generally... Ertapenem, imipenem, meropenem. So, some units have been able to use ertapenem empirically if they don't have so much of a CPE problem. And then when we've got sort of GIT units, um, you know, surgical units with intra-abdominal problems, um, often they their go-to would be propicillin tazobactam and, you know, adding on amikacin for a bit of extra ESBL cover. Mm -hmm. Is that the standard aminoglycoside? It's the standard second line aminoglycoside. Um, so first line is gentamicin. So in some some EDs, you might find that they'll use ampicillin and gentamicin, where mm -hmm. they've still got low low rates of resistance. Yeah. Nice. Wise departments. <laughs> some. <laughs> it's almost like there's a, a a constant escalation. Yes. With with antimicrobials, because you're forced to use broader spectrum agents because we see resistance, and then you know, and, and then you get to a stage where you're like, well, we kind of have to use carbapenems really regularly. Can never walk that back. Almost. It's easy to see how we get to the the situation where you're having to use colistin so much. Yeah. But that that is the situation that we're in. You know, yeah. we started using when we started using penicillins 60, 70 years ago, whenever it was we yeah. changed the environment that these bugs were growing up in. They'd, they'd had these, you know, defenses against all these tools because they were being exposed to them naturally through, you know, other fungi and other bacteria producing them and trying to use them on them, but they weren't a huge problem. And then we started like drowning the world in penicillin and then other penicillin derivatives and cephalosporins and whatever, you know, it's a, it's a man-made problem. And the trouble with man-made problems like this is it becomes endemic and then pandemic. So like the, you know, the New Delhi mutation listeners probably already know this, but, you know, it arose in New Delhi, but it first properly took hold in London. It was as a result of a medical tourism uh, thing. And these bugs, they move with humans and humans move everywhere. And so you can become, you know, you can you can get situations where countries which have like really poor healthcare systems that are under-resourced and don't have access to any of the right antibiotics, um, you know, then having to deal with the consequences of lax antimicrobial use in uh, in uh, other other parts of the world like like Europe and America. Rant over. And it becomes and it becomes a vicious cycle, as you say, because you you give an antibiotic, they become resistant. You've got to use the new antibiotic, they become resistant, and yeah, yeah it's it's endless. Yeah. So, what's your go-to treatment uh, for once you get past? You, know, you said your carbapenems were for the hospital-acquired infection. What's the next? Like, if you get something that's that's more resistant, where do you go from there? So ESBLs, we still will use a carbapenem. We try to use not to use a carbapenem. So if it's say, for example, a complicated UTI or an uncomplicated UTI, we try and move away from using them. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and what would you so then we'll use? A gentamicin or a quinolone or a cotrim or just whatever so you had to hand? We don't have our quinolones as susceptible as they were about 10 years ago. Oh, really? So even, <laughs> yeah, even our ESBLs are quinolone resistant. So aminoglycosides, um, nitrofurantone, where it is susceptible phosphomycin if it's an e coli mm -hmm. yeah um, we, we are starting to try and push a bit more propicillin tazobactam for the esbls um for the uncomplicated infections um yeah so those are for the esbls and then we, when we start getting to the cpes 
because we've got such limited access to the newer agents, we're still having to use carbapenems as our base. So we'll look at the MIC and see if the MIC is less than eight, um, then we'll still use it as a base and add on a second agent. We've still got pretty good susceptibility to amikacin, so that's our, often our, our, our combination. Um, where amikacin is resistant, it's usually colistin and tigercycline that we that we have to go to. And then we'll we'll kind of make the choice of the second agent depending on the site of infection. I can ask, um, we should probably expand on that MIC less than eight thing that you just mm -hmm. mentioned there for meropenem. So what what's um just so we know what MIC cutoffs are you using for susceptibility resistance to, to meropenem? Are you using the UCAS one, CLSI? Is there a yeah. South African um standard setting? So it's mixed at the moment. Some of the private laboratories have switched over to UCAST. Um, the whole of the public sector is still using CLSI. And there's one or two private laboratories, which I think are still on CLSI. So about eight, nine years ago, everybody was CLSI. And then there's been this move to try and move everyone across to UCAST. But um, what, why? If you were all on CLSI already, why not just stick with them? So the national, the AM, is it the AMR committee? I think that it is the NAC. Yeah, the the NAC made a decision that they wanted the whole of South Africa to move across to UCAS because it is a much more robust system compared to CLSI. Um, yeah. The problem and the challenge has been that it's quite costly to undertake a full move from CLSI to UCAS, and that's kind yeah. of been the resistance. Um, from the labs that haven't moved yet. Yeah, I can see that. There's an inertia there. And yeah. from the lab's point of view, perhaps not a lot to be gained, particularly when the all the breakpoint stuff is is the same for, for quite a lot exactly. of pathogens. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I can understand that. So the uh, Mero MIC of less than eight. So normally you would want it to be sort of less than, mm, is it two? I think it's two. It's two I do, you pounds. want it to be less than two, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for two to eight, um, yeah. you would still want to use, you're still using a carbapenem. So can you explain the, the logic under underpinning that? So some years back, there were, I think, even before the newer agents became available in, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, there were some studies that looked at um, outcomes based on carbapenem MICs, and there were still reasonable outcomes in patients who were treated with carbapenems where the MSC was less than eight. Those studies, unfortunately, were all based on KPC carbapenemases. No one's really replicated the same studies with the OXA48s and the NDMs, um, but I don't think we're ever going to get that kind of information. So even the IDSA guideline says that if you've got an MIC less than eight, you can still use a carbapenem. Um, you to add something thing, in and they've add, got a list yeah, of the- add yeah. something else, yeah. The other interesting thing is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the papers by David Nicola and his group looking at the zinc concentration in the testing media, which affects the, the MICs for carbapenems for the metallobetalactamases. Um, and so he's done studies where they've depleted the zinc from testing media. The idea behind that was that we've got superphysiological levels of zinc in the Mueller-Hinton broth that we're using to test uh, carbapenem MICs compared to what levels we actually have in human bloodstreams. Um, and because the metallobetalactams, beta-lactamases use the zinc as a substrate, the more zinc you give them, the higher your carbapenem MIC will be when you in fact test. So he's done quite a few studies where they've depleted the media of the zinc um, and retested the carbapenem MICs and they've come down to completely susceptible. He replicated this then in, in an in vivo model, in a mouse model, and, and found that in fact um, with um, human levels of carbapenems, the mice actually survived with the metallobetalactamus betalactamase um, infections. So we use kind of those concepts together um, in terms of using the carbapenem as a base. Yeah. I'd uh, I'd heard that, but I hadn't heard the reference and the, and, and the detail behind it. So thanks yeah. for that. Well, that brings me neatly on to the next question, which is 
which novel agents uh, are available for for DTR gram negative resistance in South Africa. And as a reminder to the listener, the novel agents are Kefidericol, the Trojan horse, Meropen and Baborbactam, uh, Keftolazine, Tazobactam, or Imnopen, Silostatin with Relabactam, Keftazidine, Avabactam, and some would also include Plasomycin. And what's the... Uh, what's the macrolide variant? Do you remember, Cal? you remember, Vin? Ravacycline. Ravacycline, that's the one, yeah. yeah. So which of these do you have to play with? So in 2022, um, keftazidine avibactam and keftolozane tazobactam were finally launched in South Africa. Um, they're more easily available in the private sector. They're very limited and very restricted in the public sector because of the cost, especially. So they're now entering the playing field, but still quite limited. Um, again, the biggest problem is where we see these dual carbapenemases. You know, the NDM kind of knocks out, you know, the, the idea that you could use either one of these agents at all. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And uh, although I, I guess you could mix the Keftaz AV with Astrianam. Astrianam. So do, again, do you have it's access not, to Astrianam. It's not registered in South Africa, but um, some of the private hospitals have been able to access it. So yes, that has been used on a couple of occasions. Um, it's quite an expensive concept for the public sector. So we haven't really used it um, in, in my setting because I'm in a public mm. hospital, but I know it's been used in, in private hospitals. And then I was saying to Callum earlier, I'm going to talk about tiger cycling as, as a new agent, uh, knowing full well that it's not a new agent, but we haven't had access to it for such a long time. And there's there's hospitals who are now finally getting access to tiger cycling. So for those listening in South Africa who have only just gotten it in the last year or two are going to think, well, you know, that's a new agent. Why aren't you talking about it? Um, so yes, tiger cycling um, is becoming more accessible than it was in the past. Fair yeah, and that's about it. That's all we have so, access to. So you have access to Keftazavi and Keftolzintazabatin, but use is restricted by cost use in the public sector, which is what most people are using. Cost yeah. and the presence of the NDMs. So often I, you'd say, hey, this is a perfect patient. We should try Keftazavi. And you test the isolate and invariably somehow there's an NDM that creeps in. Okay. So what's your approach to to the, the treatment of these uh, DTR organisms without all the options that you've got. Uh, so thinking about like maybe that, how would you approach an NDM case versus an OXA48? So for a non-severe infection, we try to go with a single agent that is tested susceptible in vitro to try and limit, you know, kind of overuse of antimicrobials. For an invasive infection, like a bloodstream infection, for example, we'll go with combination therapy, use the carbapenem as a base if the MIC is less than eight, and we'll choose the carbapenem with the lowest MIC between imipenem and meropenem. If amikacin is susceptible, that's usually our second go-to agent. If the MIC is, is kind of borderline susceptible um, or resistant, then it's usually colistin that we will go with. If it's an intra-abdominal infection or if it's a skin and soft tissue infection, then a tigercycline will be added. And that's kind of usually all we have to play with. Um, we don't have many isolates that are susceptible to quinolones, as I've mentioned, but where it is susceptible, we would consider using it. What yeah. about uh, cotrimoxazole? Do you have that? Most as of a... our isolates are resistant. Mm. Okay. So... Carbapenem, if possible, yeah. Yeah. Uh, plus either colostin or ticocycline or, uh, or amikacin. Yeah. And that, that's it really, isn't it? That's, that, that's really two it. Two of those four, ameripenem if you can. Meropenem if you can. So in some situations where the meropenem MIC is greater than eight, then we've basically just got the three agents mm. to play with. So amikacin, tigocycline, colostin, and where possible, we obviously will try and avoid using the aminoglycoside and colistin together because of the nephrotoxicity of both those agents. Um, so the kind of that's last, that's bottom of the list in terms of, of options. Uh, combination. Yeah, well, I, I was just thinking of those three agents, two of them are nephrotoxic. And exactly. 
I mean, as as you're well aware, I'm quite the fan of aminoglycosides. Yeah. And in fact, the episode that you've just released at the time of the yeah. recording is an aminoglycosides episode, which is a perfect complement to, to, uh, to our one. But episode. even I would balk at the idea of giving somebody colistin and amicacin and in therapeutic dosing. So to be honest, we've we've used that combination in neonates. Um, oh. And they somehow neonates tolerate these nephrotoxic agents so much better than adults do. And it's quite fascinating because we don't actually know what the appropriate PD, PKPD is in these neonates. They're not well studied. Um, even a proper creatinine clearance in a neonate is not easy to establish and work out. So so it's it's actually quite, it's a blessing that they can tolerate it. No. But well, that I mean, I suppose I, we, neither of us are pediatric uh, doctors, but the, yeah. we've had to cover them occasionally when we're doing microbiology to give advice. And the what yeah. one of our the people that we both trained under uh, just said to me once: children are hard to kill, and it's just as well given the stuff that we have to give them. Sometimes this was before <laughs> well. we had access to the new agents, but it, yeah. it's as you say, their kidneys just seem to be able to put up with it. Thankfully, and yeah. you know that's. You know that's all to the good. Yeah, yeah. I, I I suppose from the from the UK perspective, the the new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations and kefidericol and all that sort of stuff, they're they're kind of new, and mm-hmm. they've basically come onto the scene in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But before that, we were using, as you say, kefidericol, ticacycline when we had to. Uh, amicacin, all that kind of stuff on on top of carbapenems, we weren't doing it in quite so formalized a way because the the DTR guidelines hadn't been released, yeah. and it was it was very kind of my impression was it was very depending on which microbiologist you were consulting. There wasn't a mm. lot of kind of yeah uh, consistent use. Some people loved colistin, other people hated it. Some people yeah. thought take a cycle and had a bad shake. Others wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that this kind of joined up approach is is going on in South Africa. Yeah. You know, seems to me to be a superior way of doing things. Yeah. Um, just to add to that, so, you know, we're all quite familiar with the IDSA guideline and the XMED guideline as well, but just to add to that, so there was a South African paper released um, last year on the appropriate use of Kectazidine abibactam and Keptolizantazobactam. And it was focused on the South African kind of epidemiology and and what is accessible and available in South Africa. So what's quite nice about that paper is that it goes through um, those drugs from the perspective of an ESPL, a CPE, and uh, a DTR, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Um, that would be. A, could you give us a link to that and we can drop yeah, it in the show notes? That would be I'll amazing to include. Yeah. What's also really nice, which is not covered so well in the IDSA and the ECMID guideline, is that for um, infections other than urinary tract, which IDSA and, and, and ECMID leave as quite a broad category, the South African guideline actually goes through intra-abdominal infections versus pneumonia, et cetera, yeah, yeah. and actually kind of draws it out much more detailed, which I think a clinician who's who's wanting to treat these infections and use these agents actually needs better guidance on so i quite like that paper in in that sense so i'll definitely add the link to it yeah that, yeah, that sounds uh brilliant i mean i i do like the the idsa guidance and the esma guidance yeah. and um but you know the the things that i've that i would sort of have against them is that they're, they're kind of localized so yeah. IDSA mentions nothing of IV phosphomycin or very little, I, I think, whereas the ESPN mentions it quite a lot. Yeah. And the um, applicability to kind of outside of um, Europe and America can be quite limited. It's not maybe not so much if you're working in some place like Australia or South Korea or Canada, yeah. Yeah. but if you're if you're not in those places and you don't have access to it, it doesn't sort of it doesn't go granular enough. It doesn't sort of say. What if what if there's no keftazavibactam? And it's weird because that was the case a few years ago. But it's true. I think I, I can't remember the exact reference for it, but there was it was a global study that that surveyed infectious diseases specialists all over the world to ask them what they had available. And I can't remember the exact number, but there was a huge proportion of countries that didn't have access to these new agents. 
And so it's not it's not unusual to find other people in the very same situation that I'm in. Mm. Um, and even other income countries. So I believe, um, I think Canada doesn't have access to these newer agents either. So I think there are a couple yeah, of countries both, like that. Yeah, both upper and middle low income countries that don't have access. Well, New Zealand has a terrible, because um, I, I work, used to work there, it's got a terrible trouble getting access to new drugs because there's yeah. only 4 million people there. So nobody can be bothered going through regulatory approval. Yeah, sure. This just isn't just for antibiotics. It's for loads of other drugs. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they've got, you know, typically speaking, they've got like one PPI and one beta blocker, maybe a two, yeah. you know, uh, but small countries like that mm. often have difficulty getting access to new stuff. And particularly if it's a new antibiotic, you know, you really want, you want FDA approval, you yeah. want EMA approval yeah. and, Basically, you know, maybe maybe approval in, in China or Japan, and that's about it. And everything else can wait because yeah. that's where you're going to make your money. Your and money. so then, you know, going down to South Africa and going through all that trouble to then get access to 40 million people. Yeah. And maybe there's not a lot of money in the healthcare system, so your drug won't get used a lot. Yeah. Th this is a problem that that kind of the subscription model is trying to trying, trying to solve, to I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it's really interesting to think about like these big guidelines that we lean on, like the UCAS as a, as an organisation, which is huge, and how there's so much similarity within infection medicine between different places in the world, but obviously there's big differences, particularly in the epidemiological aspects of resistance. Yeah. So you almost like having these papers where someone says like, okay, this is the this is the overall approach for the world. And then here we're going to talk about it specifically to this area or this, you know, whatever's going on in your local context. Um, and you kind of need both both those sides because not everything is the same. Like a lot is, but things are different. So mm -hmm. maybe we need a we need a Scottish paper, James, um, a UK paper that adapts the the European guidance. Well, I don't live in um, Scotland anymore, so there. Okay. You're on your own. <laughs> Somewhere. It's your problem, Callum. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. But I, you know, I wonder actually if the UK is going to fall foul of, of not being under the auspices of the EMA anymore. And to be, we're probably a little bit protected by it because getting nice approval for for drugs is, is such a, you know, su such a badge of honour that the drug companies will probably still be interested in marketing in the UK to get that. So they can then turn around to other agencies and say, hey, the UK approves of this treatment. I don't know, you know, how that's going to map on to like new antibiotics and stuff. I guess the subscription model being piloted here uh, is, will be good for getting further access to antimicrobials. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I had another question, but I think you may have already answered it, Vin, which is, um, what's the antibiotic of last resort? So say you can't use carbapenems, you're down to your three, but say, say maybe all of those are out, what would you then do? So then we probably would try and access one of the new agents, as long as there was no restriction or kind of limitation in terms of the isolate or the patient population or the site of infection or whatever that might be. Mm. Um, if would you not, have a preference or would you, I guess it would be kept as a habit really, because it's a bit more it broad. It would depend. Than... So as I said, pseudomonas is not so much of a problem in South Africa. 30% um, of our pseudomonas isolates also contain a VIM. Mm. So that's kind of the limiting factor for both drugs again. Um, oh, yeah, so we'd try to access one of those. If there was a metallobetalactamase, then Keftazidi may be back down with Astrionam. If we couldn't access any of those agents, then we go with the or with the antibiotic with the lowest MIC from what we have tested. Mm. Yeah, and so you just, just look at the mix choose, and, and make yeah. choose two. Choose two agents there and just push with source control. Because yeah. that's ultimately what it boils down to, I find. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those, that strange conversation you have when, when someone phones, and this happens, thankfully, very rarely for us, but it sounds like that might not be in, infrequent. Sometimes, you know, someone phones, and like, okay, I've got this organism, what's the treatment? And it's like, well, there, isn't, there is no sensitive, so you better do there the operation. No, you better drain that abscess because yeah. 
sorry, I don't have, I can't give you, and the, the response you get when you say that is just like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> but maybe, <laughs> there must be something. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good, it's a really bad conversation to be having because, you know, and really tearing your hair out. And I think well, that's going mean... to, everybody's practice is going to be affected by cases like that. And you really remember them as well. Well, a few years when we were when we were training, we were using the the MDR as you know non susceptible to three, and XDR as as uh, susceptible to two or fewer. Um, and that led to, I mean, it was a lot of work for probably not a lot of benefit because obviously it's very easy to be MDR to three things, but still be you know blisteringly susceptible to a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And the all but two would then trigger if it was a gram negative us to do a colistin test because we don't we yeah. don't have it on our vitec cards or yeah do you do broth microdilution is that what you we do? do we do yeah okay but that would take a day or two and yeah. so then they would be like well what do we treat them with in the meantime and i remember this one time we said well technically you've got nothing um but just start them on meropenem anyway and we'll we'll just see what we get with the yeah. Uh, Colliston, this is an ITU patient, obviously, and oh gosh, yeah, and they they had been labelled as not a good surgical candidate, mm. and so then we turned around and said, it doesn't matter if they're a good surgical candidate or not, we don't have an antibiotic yet, they'll die if yeah. you don't operate, yeah, and so in in their defence, the surgeons just turned and said, well, that makes things much easier, doesn't it? And they took them, <laughs> um, and I can't remember if they lived or died, but I guess. That I mean, that situation when I was going through it, giving the advice, I was like, I never want to be in this situation ever again. Yeah. Um, the thing is that we we all will as as you know probably as patients as we, you know, you're going to get your hip done in thirty years, James. Then <laughs> you know thirty years. So you think it's going to last until I'm seventy? That's very kind of you, Callum. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, um, but no, I, I mean, I guess you're right. And I suppose part of the reason that we have harped on, we've harped on about difficult to treat gram negatives for what is now, I think, six episodes, this will be the sixth, is because I think it's the, it's almost like a growth industry. Like this is the thing that we're going to encounter. It sounds like you're kind of halfway there already in, yeah, in South Africa, Vin, but, you know, like these bugs, they all live in your gut and they all talk to each other and they all swap weapons. Absolutely. And there's not a lot you can do against it, except, you know, you can you can do what we're kind of doing, which is like get the carbapenem and add something else in to make it still susceptible. But yeah. then you're just sort of going up the beta-lactamase ladder, and I'm not sure that's the best yeah. impression. Whereas learning how to use the old stuff properly, yeah. I think is like that's an unexplored weapon. I'll I tell you, like down here where I'm working at the moment, mm -hmm. we've... Up here. <laughs> yeah up there <laughs> up there uh yeah uh, true um we have basically now that we've got access to keftazavibatam and kefidericol whenever we snap our fingers or fill out a blue tech form we barely used the stuff that you've mentioned colistin ticocycline amicacin and that's with me you know sometimes pushing for you know for adding in aminoglycosides yeah but it it's it's easy now to to use these mm. things and i think that's how you get to a situation where uh all of a sudden they're they're not useful either we've already got a few pseudomonas isolates like that yeah. um uh, as well so interestingly we haven't had access to the new agents but um some of the laboratories down here submitted isolates to a global study that was doing susceptibility testing on both agents um there was about a 30% resistance rate already. And wow, the drug is really? not officially registered in this country. But is it this comes all back to that. Tourists or tra tra people traveling in having acquired possibly, these resistance possibly, mechanisms elsewhere? So. so it was accessible in the private sector, kind of on a on a case-by-case -case basis with a whole lot of paperwork, hmm. um, while it was an unregistered drug. But I you know, I don't think it was used all that much that it would have driven this kind of resistance. Yes. And so quickly. Yeah. I mean, not 30% is quite a lot. Absolutely. And and but it's, it comes back to that concept, bugs without borders. They they travel with us. Bugs without borders. I like that. Yeah. 
Uh, Callum, that's the episode title. I don't like it, but yeah, Bugs Without Borders. (laughs) Bugs Without Borders, a conversation with microbe mail. All right, write that down. Don't change it. That's gold. Um, Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that's, I I, I guess that's why, you know, antimicrobial stewardship is a, we, you know, we focus on it in our own hospitals, but really it's like a global problem and resistances that we help foster in our hospitals can affect people, you know, thousands of thousands of miles away. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, very vaguely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's truly terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bread and butter for us every day. You know, if, if I go into work and don't see a CPE, I'll almost think they would, there's something wrong today. (laughs) Why have I not seen a CPE? See, now that's nothing like uh, where we're working, either uh, either up in Nados North or Nados South. Um, and we are relatively close to London down here. Mm-hmm. And I, when I came down, I was I was like, well, I'll be seeing a lot more of NDMs and VIMs and IMPs and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But that's just, you know, that's not the case. It's completely aside here. You, you say Nados North and Nados South. And actually someone local to here the other day who listened asked me to, what that meant um so maybe jamie should explain it i don't want to explain it <laughs> <laughs> i'll explain it well i don't know what that means so you can explain well there we go me. so we have to be we're, we're fine fine, here, fine 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 so if you have no money then you've got nay dosh no dosh ah right <laughs> nay dosh royal infirmary right got you so there okay well well cal we got one last question uh for vin do you want to ask it uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, the way James worded this question, I'll just I'll just use. So, um, is there anything like any weird little tips or tricks that you would that you have in mind when you're dealing with um, difficult to treat gram-negative organisms? Uh, you know, for, uh, James gave an example of sometimes we might use doxycycline for UTIs, even though it doesn't feel like an, a usual use of that drug. That sometimes we're in a bit of a bind, and that's what we end up using. Yeah, so I I think it just comes down to the fact that we have such few agents available. You know, if we do have a weird drug that happens to be susceptible, we would definitely consider it, at least if it would be carbapenem sparing or colistin sparing, Um, you'd certainly try it. Um, We've done some weird things with um, colistin, unfortunately, because we're used to using so much of it. I've already mentioned that in pediatrics and neonates, um, there isn't sufficient data. And so sometimes having to play with dosing and dosing schedules is, is tricky. There's no real recommendation on how to dose colistin in a neonate or a child with renal dysfunction. So that's sometimes a bit of a thumbsuck, unfortunately. We've done interesting things with um, phosphomycin, Um some interesting dosing regimens for multi-drug resistant pathogens. Yeah. Do you, do you have IV phosphomycin in South We Africa? don't have IV phosphomycin, but we, we've had UTIs that are not clearing. We've mm. done kind of daily daily for five days, mm. uh, three grand, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. And in, in very, very specific situations, we've done some strange things with colistin, um, giving intrathecal colistin. Um, we've had bladder irrigations with colistin as well. Um, yeah, just, you know, when you're so strapped and you, you really have nothing available, you start trying some unusual things just to try and save the patient. Do you use nebulized colistin a lot? Not a lot. Like for In VAPs, fact, we, would you, would you we, give it IV and yeah, nebulized? Yeah. If we did give it, we would definitely give both. Um, it's been used a few times in some of the ICUs, but we don't encourage it too often. Um, I think, you know, getting the right nebulizer is a problem, you know, making sure that it's mixed correctly is a problem. Mm. Uh, We're we're quite worried about bronchospasm, especially if it's a child or a neonate, Um, but it has been used in a few situations. Yeah. It's used uh, more readily by the respiratory physicians here than Yeah. um, Yeah. So in the cystic fibrosis clinic, it it is used more regularly, but yeah, but um. Well, I'm thinking about a recent case. We had a VAP and it was, yeah. I think it was a pseudomonas, difficult to treat. Yeah. And it was sensitive to uh, topramycin and colistin and maybe mm-hmm. one other thing. 
and they they recommend the respiratory guys were asked for their opinion they recommended nebulized mm. uh, colistin i think they were on iv gen i didn't really understand why they chose that over tobramycin i think yeah. it was maybe just a familiarity uh, thing but i'm i'm pretty unsure about the evidence base behind nebulized antibiotics in general yeah uh, it's something that i want to look into for a future episode but yeah mm. it'll be interesting yeah. to find out that's a great idea uh, right. Don't steal it. That's a that's an idiot's I won't, only. I won't. I won't. Uh... <laughs> Hands off! I promise. Cross, we have to cross reference things. The amino glycosides episodes that you that you did recently. And you've got it recorded, so. That's yeah. true. That's true. Oh yeah. Well, I'll edit it out, and then you can you'll be free. Ah yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I think that's all we had to say. Is there anything else anybody wants to uh, mention? Yeah, one more thing about what I noticed about guidelines is, you know, they a lot of them say that when you're using colistin, you should use it with a second active agent. But to be honest, by the time you're getting to colistin, it's often because you don't have a second susceptible agent available. Um, and then you kind of find yourself in a bit of a corner there. But mm. it is what it is. And, it, you know, it isn't the fault of the guideline authors. Mm. Um, it's just tricky as a practitioner or a prescriber to decode that. I think the the evidence base until recently has been, you know, because colistin is so old, the evidence base is quite sort of patchy. There was a study that just got released. Um, I'll find it and I'll I'll drop it in the. Mm. It can go in the show notes too. But it was um it was the French study of of kind of VAPS treated with either meropenem plus colistin or colistin monotherapy. Yeah. And colistin monotherapy was non-inferior. Yeah. At least that's how I read it. Sort of kind of suggesting to me that the veripenem wasn't adding much in terms of yeah. your yeah. hard gram negative cover. So, I mean, that would kind of go with your impression. Yeah. So quite a few randomized control trials looking at acinetobacter balmani specifically um, found no benefit to a second agent. So there, there are quite a few cases for abalmani specifically where we would recommend using colistin on its own. That's brilliant. Um, uh, ben, thanks very much for coming and, uh, and thanks uh, for having us. us all that. Is there going to be a simultaneous release? Then I, yeah, I, we're definitely we, going to release together. Yes. Well, thank thank you for having us. Well, we um, should do. You. But I mean, I'm I'm fairly thank sure that the information has been flowing from micro mail to the two idiots here. Like, I don't think we've added much. <laughs> no, yeah. it's been amazing. And thanks again for the invitation. It's been really wonderful to finally meet you both. Not just listen to you on my way to work every day. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, okay, uh, questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com or mail.microbe at gmail.com. Uh, have a five-star review in your pocket. Both podcasts would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod and at microbe mail. Correct. Yeah. And until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Ben. I'm Callum. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.